This is a podcast from ABC Overnights. Have you ever gone on a journey to find your roots? Maybe to find out more about your family's story? That's what Tim Mountford did. Uh, Tim uh, on his, went on his journey and it took him to the small English seaside town of Hastings where he works in a vintage flower shop. On my recent trip to the UK, I met with Tim at his workplace in the old town. You can see those pansies over there, the coloured pansies. How they've got, yeah, it's got, they've got all the, the beautiful little lines in there. Hi, we're at uh, the Shirley Leaf and Petal Flower Makers Museum in the High Street of Hastings in the southeast of the UK. Welcome. I was born in Melbourne, Australia, and lived quite a few years in Darwin, which I still think of as home. But I, um, I've been living over here for several years now. What brought you here? Oh, good question. I think I was on a bit of a personal heritage quest. Um, my ancestors are from the UK and I felt I needed to know a bit more about my backstory. Hastings was a bit of a lucky accident. I just stumbled upon it and um, never left. <laughs> After working in Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory, how did that inspire your own cultural journey? Uh, I think working with the mob up north made me realise the importance of history and tradition and culture and I started to feel my own backstory was very much lacking. Uh, so that's what really, I think, yeah, made me question my own identity and my own culture and brought me here to the UK on a quest uh, to understand, yeah, myself. Have you been feeling closer to those ancestors in your own cultural story? <clears throat> yeah, so I have. I, I, I started uh, working in the UK um, at Stonehenge and that was a very poignant kind of segue, I guess, from working in, in remote parts of the NT because there were there were aspects of uh, of Neolithic culture in the UK that were very sort of very strongly similar um, to traditional ways of life uh, in the north. So that really helped me sort of connect to my own story in, in a sort of parallel way. Uh, and then over here on this side of the country, uh, other aspects of the culture. More traditionally, so going back, say, 100 years when people were uh, a bit more connected to the environment. In this area, it's a fishing town, so people are, are sort of reliant on the environment for their, their way of life. So that sort of has that's connected me in this area, but also, I guess, the artistic traditions as well. The place where you and I find ourselves right now, we are surrounded by hundreds upon hundreds, let's even say thousands of fake flowers, many made from velvet, there's silk, there's satin, there's rolls and rolls of materials of the same kind. Uh, there's the little stamens and the bits of pollen that are all artificial and made. There's leaves galore. What is this place? So this is the Flower Makers Museum, possibly the world's only uh, and certainly the biggest collection of traditional flower making 
tools, irons, cast iron cutters and veiners, most of which were manufactured in Germany but were a big part of the flower making industry in the UK during Victorian times and Edwardian times but went out of fashion in a lot of ways however just through constant innovation uh, the owners of this business have kept it going and maintained the collection that you see around you. (laughs) This collection is not just historical it's used for current things as well people's own projects but also some people may have seen some of these flowers on television. Yes, absolutely. So we've supplied in the past a lot of uh, film and television productions, costume makers from many of the major film houses and television production companies still source product from here and fabric, authentic fabric from here. Yeah, we supply some very vintage fabrics that the owner acquired many decades ago so it's all very authentic um, and yeah very popular amongst uh, on theatre and and film and uh, as well as you know fashion for instance. One of the TV shows that people might know is Bridgerton. Yes the costume designer comes in here often. Uh, Filmmakers one of the more famous jobs we had before I worked here was producing flower petals for uh, the movie Gladiator, starring Russell Crowe. Uh, we cut out many, many thousands of rose petals that were in the last scene in the Colosseum, amongst many other jobs. <laughs> the top floor here, the ground floor, is part museum, also shop. But if we step down into the basement, we are stepping back in time in many ways because down here... There are glass cabinets, glass cabinets, more glass cabinets filled with, again, old flowers, the leaves. There's bridal tiaras, there's little jewels, uh, there's old photos in frames and lots of metal stamps in a way, I guess, for, for lack of me knowing a better word, of leaves and petals which are used to make these flowers as well as some very old vintage equipment. Please tell me, what can we see? Yeah, so you're sort of looking at over a 100 years of history, really, of flower-making history. So as well as the cutters and veiners, you've got many samples of products produced here, so waxed leaves, waxed flowers, waxed dahlias there. We have some very amazing machines in this room featuring uh, dahlia makers, which are a sort of mechanised process for curving the petals. Uh, We also have cutters, uh, again, cast iron machines produced over 100 years ago to vein each individual petal or leaf or flower so just to give it a really authentic appearance for for instance women's hats uh, you know it was the height of fashion for uh, many years in the Victorian period but we also have a huge bridal collection of hand dipped flowers and leaves all in wax dipped in wax to give them that luster and hand wired so really many years of, of um, hand 
industry um, driven by women in a lot of cases uh, employed many women in this industry a lot of fine work fine processes and uh, many years of that history preserved here and also children this was children's labor also yeah so going back into the victorian era uh you know there was a lot of poverty not very good labor conditions or laws um in relation to children so a lot of families would make ends meet however they could and a lot of the decorative industries including things like wallpaper making uh, and textile processes employed children unofficially a lot of it would happen uh, at home and people's homes they would be um, outsourcing labor to home workers and in that instance a lot of children became involved very unhealthy environments and in some ways those industries ended because labor laws did improve and the cost therefore of production went up um, and that's what sort of was one of the reasons there was those industries declined uh, the increased cost of production. Well, it was unhealthy in the sense of not just labour hours and working, but also the materials. Yeah, that's right. Um, they used quite toxic dyes, for instance. And I think there was also various substances that were incredibly bad for their lungs. They worked under very low light conditions, often using things like candles and, and oil lamps. There wasn't, in a lot of poor houses, certainly electricity. So they were working in, in terrible conditions, working terrible hours and would, um, would miss a lot of school just purely to achieve that extra income. So, yeah, it was very much a survival tactic. There wasn't social care or support for families, social welfare. So really families did whatever they had to do to make money. What would teachers say? They knew it was a busy day of flower making when... Yeah, well, there was no choice. Um, seeing these kids come in, you know, sort of uh, tired or sick, they, uh, their parents had no choice but to, to make them work, sadly. So the, and what would happen to their hair? Yeah, so the kids' hair used to change colour or fall out sometimes if they were using uh, chemicals or if they were working too long at certain processes, yeah, so the, the, that applied to a lot of industries at the time. During the Victorian era, children suffered from all sorts of toxic substances they were exposed to, terrible conditions in many industries. Maybe we need to adjust the height. See, with this handle here, it goes up or down. So if we make it go down, maybe it won't be so tightly in there. This is a machine that isn't so dangerous, mm. not like the chemicals we're talking about or the processes. Uh, what's this machine and when's it from roughly? Uh, this is a flower cutter. This would be sort of turn of the century, so big cast iron hand operated press. Uh, prior to this, uh, cutters would have uh, used a heavy hammer and um, the cutter would have been bashed into layers of fabric by hand. However, this cutter achieves the same thing just by the use of um, a large wooden handle and uh, a mechanised process. Wow, so you've got sort of the metal, a metal stick or iron stick. Mm, cutter. That's the cutter. So it has the, um, the shape of the flower. I guess in the end, it's very sharp edges. So uh, incredibly, this tool would be over 100 years old, but has maintained 
incredibly sharp edges purely because it's, it's made of, of pure iron. And you turn it around, you pull the levy down. Yep, and the pressure forces the sharp edges of the cutter through the layers of fabric and cuts you multiple layers of, in this case, a small daisy shape. The veiner has to get quite hot. And what, oh. yeah, what happens, this bit, this, this bit is, gets hot. Um, we heat it up with electricity. It, they would have used to done it with coal or something underneath to keep it hot. This one was made in 1911, which was quite a long time ago. But this gets hot, the, the piece of fabric would fit perfectly in there. And this makes this very hot. And then when the fabric's in there, and you put this on top, and it fits perfectly. And then you turn this, so those strong women who are sitting on those veining tools there, they would have given it a very tight squeeze like this. And then when they pulled it out, the piece of fabric would have that beautiful pattern on there. So you feel it, you can feel that there. Yeah, it's I've got a lovely lines from a leaf. So you're still making flowers like this? Yes, so we do. We use we use this machine. We also used an, use an electrified version. Again, the machine itself is over 100 years old, but it's been wired up um, for use, uh, I guess, yeah, not steam it was when it was first made. <laughs> so we use it a lot to create multiples. I sit there and, um, yeah, bash out many hundreds, sometimes thousands of leaf shapes for things like theatre. Uh, if, if you ever, you know, want some imitation autumn leaves, we're one of the few places that can provide them. That bit's going to go up and down, and I'll show you how it works, all right? So you stand here, and you can look through and see where that blue board is. That's where I'll see, and I'll show you how it's done. So this is the modern cutter. When this was it made? It doesn't look that uh, modern. Like 19, 1920, something like that. Here's that big machine. You can hear the electrics pressing in and cutting those shapes. How long would it take to make a bunch of velvet roses? So a bouquet of velvet roses with leaves. Of course, you've got to put the inside in, the mm -hmm. little wire stamens and the pollen or whatever you call what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. How long would that take? Uh, so the cutting, I suppose, is relatively quick because we can cut sort of in terms of flowers and leaves, we cut two at a time, and, and as you can tell, it's quite relatively quick. So, And for a rose, it's four pieces per rose. So the cutting's the quick part. The making, which is done upstairs by my colleague Lizzie, uh, can take probably around four or five minutes for each bloom. So, yeah, for, for a, a posy of, of six roses, I mean, I suppose from start to finish you could probably do it in an hour the cabinets behind us are filled with thousands of leaves petals all the cutters i can't even begin to describe how many are behind us do you feel like you're a part of history when you're here yeah so i mean i think when you work in a business that is 
is so old. So I think it was founded in 1911 in London in the East End. Uh, you feel a certain responsibility to, I guess, continue um, what has already been a very long, important story uh, and also in making that story relevant to the modern market in so far as we can keep the doors open and keep an income happening. So again, you just have to adapt and be creative to help the industry continue on in whatever capacity you can. So we're, we're sort of doing tours and workshops. We've started offering workshops um, in flower making. Uh, so yeah, just whatever we can do to help um, this incredible story uh, continue into the future. <laughs> and as you're on a personal search of your own history, how it kind of intertwines like a vine into today, into the present and the future. So is this yeah. part of your journey as well? I think... My, because I'm a gardener, a passionate gardener, um, and again, like working as a gardener in Australia, uh, I can't but help still have a connection to European plants. Weirdly, there's a tradition um, of plants, things like herbalism, but also gardening, that it's a European tradition, hence many introduced species from the UK being popular in Australia. So I guess, again, it's trying to, for me, trying to connect to the natural history of this country. And here we feature leaf shapes and flower shapes from hundreds and hundreds of species indigenous to the UK. So it's part of me learning about the natural history of this country as well. And more about those species that at one time were crucial to survival in this country. So that's that sort of personal dimension. Plus I'm, you know, a creative person um, and worked a lot with fabric in Australia and um, it's, it's sort of in that area. It combines a personal interest in textiles uh, with uh, an interest in the natural world.